story behind the story. I'm Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is local author and writing instructor Andy Couturier. Andy's work has appeared in a slew of publications, including Adbusters, The Japan Times, The Oakland Tribune, Creative Nonfiction Magazine, The North American Review, and Fiber Arts Magazine, to name just a few. He's also published three books, including The Abundance of Less, Lessons in Simple Living from Rural Japan, in which he profiles 10 men and women who have chosen to live a different sort of life than most of us envision. It is that book that's the topic of our discussion today. Andy, welcome to Story Behind the Story. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So the people you profile live with less in a lot of different ways. Less money, less reliance on technology, less impact on the environment. I thought I'd start by asking you, what does less mean to you? Mm. Well, that's a great question because uh, sometimes I look at my own life and I think, well, I, I have a lot of books, you know, or I have a lot of clutter on my desk, you know, am I living the message of this book? But I do have uh, a lot of time. I think that's the key one is that you have time for what you actually really care about. You're not constantly overwhelmed by a to-do list. And sometimes that involves a kind of minimalism, but sometimes it's uh, just time to actually engage uh, one of the people in the book he loves flowers and he's a collector of all these different kinds of flowers. So he has right. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. So it's not that being hard and rigid about numbers of less, but that he doesn't run around trying to just cram more and more different kinds of things into his life and have no time to do what he really cares about. It's purposeful. It's thoughtful. Yeah. Yeah. So in some ways it sounds like it's less is less about less than making room for other types of things. Yeah, that's part of the message, absolutely. How did you come to know the people that you profiled? And I'm also interested in how they knew each other because it seems like a lot of them do have pre-existing relationships. Yeah. Um, well, it was serendipity. Um, <laughs> and and I, I believe more and more in serendipity. Uh, the reason that uh, I moved to Japan uh, originally with my partner Cynthia in 1989 was we wanted to uh, work and save some money so that we could buy our own piece of property uh, back in California. So we had heard that you could teach English in Japan. We didn't want to take a job that uh, abrogated our values um, hmm. or, you know, at that time and probably now, you know, a lot of uh, jobs that involve working for large corporations would, would not just have worked for us. Let's just put it that way. So we went over there to teach English and we, uh, we're able to save money, um, and we're very interested in rural life and and people doing for themselves. And along the way, we met um, doing some environmental activism and also just looking for organic food in this small town. We wanted to live in a rural area. We met a very dynamic and engaging woman. Her name is Atsuko Watanabe, and she's profiled in Chapter 3 of the book, and she's an a anti-nuclear activist uh, primarily and a mother. She also... Uh, paints pottery um, on her husband's pottery uh, for her living. She also is now a, a council member at the town council. So she's mm. working as a local politician. She's an activist and grows a lot of her own food. And uh, I happened to meet her and we hit it off immediately. I really liked her. She was very forthright. She challenged me immediately. Um, and so she invited us up to her incredibly beautiful farmstead up in the mountains of um, Shikoku which is the four, the smallest of the four main islands, um, which is where we were living. And we had no idea. I mean, at, at that time, our frame was back to the land. And that goes, right. you know, very far back to Emerson and Thoreau and 
probably before that, but the idea of people returning to a rural life, but it, it, it's not really going back at all. It's really a very much forward. Well, and that's something that comes up a few times with the people you profile. Right? Yeah. You, you talk to them about this return to the traditional methods and they correct you. Right, exactly. Um, so to answer your second question, uh, and this is what really intrigued me, or one of the things that really intrigued me about them is uh, they had known each other, many of them, not all of them, uh, because when they were in their 20s, um, and early thirties, they had lived, uh, on the subcontinent, um, in India, Tibet and Nepal. And they were very interested in Nepali culture, Nepali Buddhism, Nepali cooking, Nepali woodblock carving. And they had, um, gathered around a lodge where other Japanese people were living and doing cultural preservation projects. And they, and it was sort of like many people dropped in. There was backpacker culture, but it was when people spent six months or 12 mm. months or 18 months traveling in India as opposed to just going over there for a short period of time. So they got to know each other. And um, as I interviewed Atsuko and the people who lived near her, she introduced me to more and more people. And, and it's mostly through that network that I got to meet each of the 10 people in the book. So tell me a little bit about that relationship with India. Were they traveling there at the same time? Were they... Or, or was it just sort of a network of people who had had the similar experience? Um, mostly they, they overlapped at different times. But to me, what was particularly interesting um, at the time and still now is, is that these were Asian people who were looking at another, you know, who were looking at another Asian culture. It was pan-Asian culture. And they were integrating different things from Gandhi's emphasis on handwork and handcrafts uh, to... Um, Nepali uh, Buddhist culture. Nepal is a primarily a Hindu country, and there's an area where there's um, a Nepali uh, a Buddhist minority. And so the connection between Japanese Buddhism and Nepali Buddhism. So it was like a non-Western, a non-white gaze, or not even mm. gaze, or interaction and in, in, uh, real connection with this other Asian culture. So that was also particularly interesting to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in that too, in part because... As you said, it's a non-Western gaze, but I'm not sure that I agree that it would not be a gaze, right? Like they have an interpretation of mm -hmm. the the ways of living that the people that they encounter have. Mm -hmm. And I think you you question a few of them on this in the in the book. Right? You question them on well, poverty isn't a choice for some of the people who mm -hmm. you're talking about, but it is for you. Mm -hmm. How do you? How do you understand that? How do you feel they understood it? What's their engagement with that kind of set of issues? Yeah. Well, I think poverty is a, is a, is a very loaded word. Mm. Um, so I, I've, I've avoided it because I think it, it really kind of encompasses a lot of um, oppression and basically yeah. your, you know, decades, uh, centuries of colonialism and exploitation that um, is contextualized by in that case, British colonialism. Um, the reason I backed off on the word gaze is, you know, we think about the white Western gaze and we think about the uh, European um, Eurocentric view. Uh, and often that is either, you know, helicoptering in as a reporter in Afghanistan or, um, you know, taking various colonial stances where you're are basically... Uh, photographing, whether mm -hmm. you're actually photographing, you're 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 not in engagement with it's the more people and culture, right? Or, or 
even, even if you're there, you might just be sort of viewing from the outside. So gaze to me implies being far away and not being in interaction. And I think I backed away from that because I think a mm. lot of them, you know, they learned with, they studied with, um, you know, just to use one small example, but I think it, it encapsulates a lot of the ways that people um, that I interviewed interact is they learned, there was a man named Akira Ito. He was a woodblock carver in Japan. He was a craftsperson in Japan. Right. He met craftspeople there. He was interested in helping them resist the tide of industrial, in their case, papermaking and woodblock carving and printing, which was taking over the lives of, of craftspeople. And they went and lived with them. They documented their lives. They many times uh, lived in their villages five, ten years. And he produced a book using um, supporters, both financial and otherwise, from Japan that not only profiled and saved their woodblock and papermaking culture, mm -hmm. but it um, showed them that people around the world were interested in it, the uh, craftspeople, and, and financially paid them. So there was an, an interaction with it. You know, can people from a wealthier nation interact in a perfectly clean way from, with people from a poorer nation? I question that, but we're still always stuck in what we have and how can we act as ethically as we believe in. Uh, you know, the question of, um, you know, choosing to live with less versus mm, being forced uh -huh. to live with less is one question I asked several of them. And I was very um, surprised by their question, by their answer. Um, and, and I should mention that, you know, I was in there as a person who speaks fluent Japanese, but not perfect Japanese who is a friend, became friends with yeah. these people. So there was, you know, um, it's always my view on what they said and how I was able to pull things yeah, out yeah. of them. But Gufu Watanabe, who is prof profiled in Chapter 8, he said, yeah, sure, there's lots of people in India who are poor and just, you know, they're just desperate and they don't have enough to eat. And that's not what anybody is talking about as a, um ideal life. But to him, and I think this is borne out in my experience, that there's plenty of people all over the world, and in his case, India, who are not choosing to strive and uh, you know rise as high as possible on a corporate ladder or try to get the most amount of money and try to cram the most into their days. There are other things, uh, perhaps in his example, spiritual life or their craft mm -hmm. life is more important to them. And, other values. And their values, and I think... Personally, we need that. Uh, and there's a difference between, you know, dire, desperate um, privation and and being, you know, at a level where you have your basic needs met and perhaps a little bit of extra time and money. But as, as uh, Amemiya-san, who is in Chapter 5, said, yeah. you know, why was Gandhi so popular there? You have to ask yourself that question. Why did millions of people say, this is, I believe in your way of of thinking. And that's because they probably did share his values that um, simplicity, living with less material affluence is a richer way to live. What's the subtitle of her chapter, I think kind of speaks to that too. I'm trying to, trying to remember exactly what it is. Yeah, sure. It is breaking the trance of the next better thing. So she yeah. just talks about the next thing and the next thing, you know, you get a computer, right? Yeah, and yeah. it's got all these great features, 
right? And so you want it, and so you buy it, right? Yeah. But then another one comes out, and it's even better. And so and it's got these new features. It's planned and obsolescence. It, well, that too, but also just the new thing and the new thing, mm. and it's a trance that we get into, you know, and as she starts the, I start the chapter with her quote, that the system, the economic system depends upon everybody being dissatisfied. Mm. And it does dissatisfied people just ruin capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the, the conversation we were just having about India also raises some, some questions for you. Because, of course, though you have obviously spent a great deal of time in Japan and with these people, you are not yourself Japanese. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious how you did and how you do navigate your status as an outsider when you're, you're telling these stories and trying to bring them to an audience that is largely also outsiders. Yeah. Well, um, a number of different ways. <laughs> One way is to highlight that and say it regularly mm -hmm. and not try to hide that. I think I learned that uh, years ago at UCSC when I was uh, taking some film classes. It's like, remind people that they're watching a movie, right? Yeah. That this is a made object. Um, there's a number of times where I made the narrator, who's a little different than me, Andy, um, less knowledgeable and maybe a little mm. more dunderheaded or kind of thick than I am or that I, at least I hope I am <laughs> um, for a number of reasons. Uh, one was just to make it easier for people who are less knowledgeable, say, about Japan or um, as a foil, as a kind of foil yeah, for like, yeah. you know, and sometimes to provoke uh, the interviewer, interviewees to be like, you know, explain things explicitly that are yeah. often left implicit in conversations among Japanese people where there's a lot of tacit agreements. I think that many linguists of Japanese would agree that there's a lot less explicitness. And even my friends who are simultaneous interpreters say they're constantly struggling with that. So at first, so the book actually has two iterations. And the first one, I specifically did not want to write about my life um, here in the United States. Mm. And, uh, there's just too many books that are kind of nauseatingly like um, white guy goes to Asia, right. meets a bunch of people, and it's all about him and what he learns. And, you know, these people are just sort of background. Yeah. So I tried to avoid that. And uh, when the book um, went out of print with the first publisher, they couldn't financially keep it in print. I got a new publisher and they said, you have to write about yourself. And I said, I, I really don't want to. And they said, well, then you won't have a book contract. So I, I did put in the extra so chapter. motivated by, yeah. by external. But actually, and it's funny because, you know, I teach writing classes. And so I had to write a little autobiography. A lot of people write memoirs. And I've written, I've taught memoir classes, but I've never actually written a, a serious piece about like, okay, this is how I represent myself. So I did add that, but it's in the afterward. It's at the end. Right. It's the you know, perhaps the least important thing, but I think it was great to actually write to really struggle with how did I integrate it and not integrate what I learned yeah. from them in the book. Well, and I think there's something to the choice to, to make it not just the last chapter, but explicitly an afterward, right? Yes. That's part of what you're talking about, making mm -hmm. it a little less about you. Yeah. Yeah. You raised another point that I was really interested in reading this, which is your approach to translation. Um, Japanese and English are very, very different languages in a, in a lot of ways, yes. not just in terms of the sort of politeness strategies and what's explicit mm -hmm. or implicit, but I mean, they have very drastically different grammars in, yes. in a lot of ways. 
And of course, you translated not just the essays and other writings from the people who you profiled, but presumably the actual interviews themselves. Yes, almost all the interviews are in Japanese. Yeah. So what was that process like and what kind of challenges did you face or like concerns did you have going into it? Uh, Well, first of all, I took a lot of time doing it. I did it very slowly. And sometimes I would take days and days of writing to work out a single paragraph. Um, I recorded a lot of the interviews. um, So I listened to them again and again, trying Mm -hmm. to really listen to the tonality and the timbre of the voice and where the pauses were. I also, as a writer and a writing teacher, I am so fascinated with the actual texture of syllables and word sounds. So um, really trying to render, uh, you know, a word like inchiki, which is, uh, you know, basically means deceptiveness uh, by government officials. And I found a word in English after a lot of work, chicanery, that mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. you know, had that sign inchiki chicanery. It had that same texture to it. Now, that's not something that someone reading the book casually would necessarily know, but it was something I took a lot of pleasure in, is just trying to get uh, the texture of the work there. A second strategy I used was um, that sort of dunderhead strategy, kind of like pretending I didn't understand, provoking the person into clarifying something that I thought I understood. There's a couple of places where, where you say that about a particular word. Yeah. And then I forwarded, you know, forefronted that there's a sense of um, not knowing certain words and using a pause to be like, okay, hold on, I'm looking it up in my little dictionary was are driving along in the truck and it's kiseki. And I, you know, and this is kind of rough and tumble working class guy and he's talking about the kiseki of life. And I'm like, what the heck is kiseki? <laughs> and I look in this tiny little print and, print and it says miracle. So to kind of, and I'm surprised to see him use this word, you know, but it also puts a focus on that particular word um Mm. so those are some of the strategies but i could talk the whole whole time about just those translation strategies and and i found it very fascinating for the best and possibly worst in industrial avant-garde and outside music tune into the other side of the tracks tuesday mornings from 12 midnight to 3 a.m on KSQD, K-Squid, Community Radio for Santa Cruz County. I'm Clara Shirley Appel, and you're listening to Story Behind the Story on KSQD 90.7 FM Santa Cruz. For those of you just joining us, my guest today is Andy Couturier, author of The Abundance of Less, Lessons in Simple Living from Rural Japan. Were there things you you worried about going into the translation? <laughs> yes. <laughs> pretty much everything. <laughs> I am a worrier. Um, but I think that's good. I'm careful. I try to be very careful. And, um, you know, I've made mistakes. And, um, you know, I showed it to the people there. And in the second edition, I corrected some of the mistakes. And, um, but I also know just from some study of, frankly, French post-structuralist, post-modernist uh, linguistics and, you know, those great philosophers that gave us that work in the 60s and 70s that even English to English is just rife with misunderstandings and rife with many possibilities. And that's one of the powers and delights of language. So that when you cross the boundary of translation, that there's many possibilities that are being created and mm. many possibilities that are being missed. And that that's one of the richness uh, richnesses of human communication. One of the things I wonder about in in particular 
um, based on I have a fairly limited knowledge of Japanese, but I do have a degree in linguistics. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I know about Japanese is that even more so than English and more so than a lot of languages, there are kind of different registers um, mm-hmm. that men and women typically speak in. Mm-hmm. And my impression is that many of the, like many of the women in this book do not fit into my conception of a typical woman here, much less in Japan. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wondered if that's reflected in the way they speak in Japanese. Like, are they manipulating register? That's in, a great question. Ways? Yeah. I mean, to, you know, I chose who was going to be in the book, right? Yeah. And um, I'm particularly uh, think it's great um, not to say anybody's personality is better than any other person's personality, but very forthright people, people who are, you know, uh, ready to challenge me, you know, the demureness, especially when I feel, imagine perhaps a, an oppression in it. You know, I was, I was, you know, less dynamized personally mm. by that. Um, I think that they were also modulating their Japanese, as I do when I'm speaking to right. second language uh, people in English as a as a writing teacher and as a as an ESL teacher. So I think the woman in chapter seven, Wakako Oi, has probably the most I don't know quote feminine way of talking, and I tried as much as possible to render that. Uh, whereas uh, the woman in chapter five is. Is real She's tough. very direct. She's <laughs> very direct. You know, your questions are stupid, kind of, you know, whereas, um, so. You got me 60% right. <laughs> yes, you got me 60% right. So um, I didn't, that wasn't really what I was focusing on so much in terms of how to write the book um, or really making this a study of gender fluidity or distance, although that's something I'm quite interested in. The book has plenty in it without me going <laughs> yeah, too deeply yeah. into that. And again, um, yeah, it's yeah. really about that. One of the things I'm struck by is the way that the people you speak to sometimes correct your impressions of them. So so we were just talking about Asha Amemia. Mm-hmm. Um, she says you get her 60% or 70% right. Mm-hmm. And she also says in her update that she's she tells you to remove everything where you say she's living a spiritual life. Mm-hmm. And then there are a few people, we talked about this a little bit earlier, who who you sort of initially characterize as returning to traditional methods and they say, oh, mm. it's not a return or it's it's not traditional in the way that you're thinking mm-hmm. of. What do you make of these kinds of corrections and what do you think the people who you're talking to are trying to convey? When well, I certainly am encouraging them to correct me mm. as I'm going along. Um, I think in many ways, well, I will say, I won't even hedge it, I'm an anarchist and I really dislike hierarchies of all kinds. So as a writing teacher, people are like, Oh, how should I fix this? And I'm like, (laughs) you know, I can help you try to figure that out for yourself. I can certainly give you my opinion, but I really want to in any way deflect the authority of the author, the authoritarianism of the author. And so um, I think every time I was corrected and I encouraged it, I wanted to not just erase that and then put in the right thing. I wanted to, uh, implicate a self and kind of, you know, I mean, it is also a Buddhist teaching to not make the self grandiose. Um, and so kind of saying, you know, I do make mistakes, um, especially because even in Japan and you know, maybe even especially in Japan, people who live 
out in the country are growing their own food, living with, you know, old tools, not a lot of technology. It's pretty unusual. So they occasionally get media people coming in and saying, oh, so why are you a weirdo, you know, right? Mm, or mm-hmm. why are you doing this traditional thing? And if they live in a traditional, in a house that was built a long time ago and they use wood to heat their house or cook their food, someone might come in and say, oh, you're living a traditional life. And it's like, well, actually the stove I'm using is a Nepali design, right? right and right. my father's traditional life was incredibly hierarchical and he was like forced to be a doctor and he was the first son and uh, we don't do any of that stuff. So it's just wrong. And so, and I chose people who were ready to correct misconceptions and that's probably part of them not just going along with the herd in the first place. And I just didn't want to hide that. So, I mean, you said that they are used to people coming in and with these sort of pat narratives they're trying to impose. Do you think it's just a rejection of that and just a response to that? Or is there something else they're trying to tell you? I don't know. Do you have an idea of what they might be trying to tell me? I don't know. I I, I think about it a lot because I thought it was so interesting. And to me, I I was talking to Lanier about this yesterday. um, And Lanier is my husband for the radio people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I was talking to Lanier about this yesterday. And it's one of the things that made me more interested in the book. Right. Because I think I, going into this, wondered if it was going to be another Western person going into Japan and having these conversations and the inclusion of that, of all of those corrections really made me think about it differently. Hmm. But I don't know that I know what they were trying to tell you. I think some of it just is what you said, that many of them seem to be very direct people and they want to tell you when you're wrong. Some of them, I think, also are probably a little contrarian. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking especially of the man in chapter one whose name Oizumi is Oizumi-san. yeah. Right. <laughs> Oizumi-san. Um, he definitely strikes me as someone who's pretty contrarian and Mm -hmm. he corrects almost everything you say. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Can't get a sentence out without Mm -hmm. some kind of correction. So some of it I think is probably just personality, but yeah, I was curious. Well, I mean, there's, 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 okay. So I can't quite say I'm bicultural, but I did live there for a long time. I just came back last month. I go there every two or three years now and, and I feel very at ease and, and comfortable there. So I'll make a generalization that, uh, mm. as all cultural generalizations are, are lies in some <laughs> sense, but have hopefully some congruency with, with the actual, that accuracy is highly valued, even mm. in mainstream culture, right? So it's actually, as an English teacher there, it's one of the things that makes it difficult for Japanese people to learn English is, is that getting it exactly right, getting the perfect, and it, you know, makes a you know, a, a, a Sony product work really well or a train run on time or a Toyota be a car that runs for 30 years. But it makes it hard act. to have a conversation. Yeah, but well. I mean, you know, so if you if you do get things, you know, inaccurate, especially they know I'm going to be representing them, right? I think people want to be represented accurately. And, and I think the more that people who are being interviewed, um, in any case, in any situation, Western or, you know, Tanzanian or in the Seychelles or wherever, you know, understand that there's a relationship when someone comes in there wanting information out of them that, uh, you know, there's, there's a sense of, of, uh, let me get something from Mm -hmm. you. Right. And Mm -hmm. so I want to be 
as mutual as I possibly can and 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 then navigating more of a gift economy than a rapacious sort of mining economy. Right. And so to the extent that people are like, you know, I know you're trying to find out this thing, right? But at least get me right. So I'm gonna move to something a little different now. Yeah. There's a tension in the way that you present many of these stories. Hmm. Um between I think individual choices. Mm-hmm. A lot of these people describe their choice to live this way in very individual terms, um, not as something that they would impose on anyone else and sometimes something that would be bad if everyone else took it up Mm -hmm. in some extremes. So attention between that on the one hand and the sort of communal or social responsibility. Mm -hmm. A lot of them live far from their neighbors, definitely far from the city, right? They're out Mm -hmm. in the country. They've made choices that really separate them from modern Japanese society. There's uh, one guy who doesn't ever read the newspaper mm-hmm. because he just doesn't like to. He finds it keeps, it engages him in a way that makes mm-hmm. him unhappy. And still a lot of these people participate in larger movements for social good, right? Mm-hmm. The anti-nuclear movements, other sort of environmentalist mm-hmm. um, movements. How do they reconcile those opposing impulses? Like how does the guy who doesn't ever read the newspaper stay engaged with the broader needs of the world that he's part of? And how do you, having chosen a similar way of life for yourself? Let's start with that there's 10 people in the book. So there's a lot of books on like simplicity on the Japanese minimalism, which are like one size fits all and you, you know, and monocropping really sort Mm -hmm. of like, this is the way you do it. And so there are people who don't have a telephone or a car. And there's one person who, uh, you know, uses email all the time. Right. For activism. For activism. You know, the man in chapter 10 is, you know, uh, lives an incredibly simple life and grows all of his own food with his partner, Wakako. And yet he was the person who brought the first whole earth catalog to Japan. He was the person who translated all of, um, uh, a lot of Ramana Maharshi and Milarepa and all of these uh, Indian sages, as well as um, bringing um, awareness to the Native American struggles in the Southwest. So politically bringing international progressive leftist issues to the world. And so he's very politically and socially engaged. Um, I think one distinction is, is it's not between individualism and social responsibility. And again, this is, I'm just, this is my opinion. Yeah, right? It's not me speaking as a mouthpiece for them. Um, that there's a individual responsibility and not in the sort of right wing sense of <laughs> individual responsibility, but just like, how am I impacting people around me and how can I minimize the negative uh, impact? So one person, I don't think he thinks about it this way that he's doing an environmental life. He just wants to live with very little money. And so he tries to not use it. Right. And he's trying to figure out a life so he is not engaged in having to go work for a living. Now, what's the result of that? I think it's profoundly environmental, but he's not trying to grab a bullhorn and say everybody should live this way. Far from it. He will always say, I'm never trying to do that. This is just my way of trying to live a rich life. But I see him, and so this is my interpretation, as somebody who has very little consumption and very little production. And if I think really hard about our profound environmental crisis right now, Mm. I definitely think that's a huge part of it for all of us. Produce less, consume less. And if he inspires 
people, which in fact he has over 30 years all over the world, not just through my book, but through articles and through television shows and through people moving to his village to actually start doing that less. Is he being a social activist? No, but mm. he's actually having a huge impact on people by inspiring them that they can actually live a much richer life and have a lot better time without like burning through tons of plastic and getting on airplanes every week and basically destroying the entire planet. Do you think that that sort of urgency we're seeing in environmental movements mm -hmm. um, in the U.S. and yeah. in Europe and probably globally on some mm -hmm. level, does that impact someone like, I'm sorry, I can't remember which of the mm -hmm. people you profiled that was. What was his name? Uh, the one I was just talking yeah, about, yeah. Nakamura-san. Nakamura-san. Mm -hmm. Do you think that impacts someone like Nakamura-san? Does he feel that urgency or is the sort of... I don't think so. I think I would be pretty correct. I want to answer your question about the guy who doesn't read the newspaper. Oh, yeah. I just put it in there directly because, you know, he's like, I, I don't, you know, I'm just not a political kind of person, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that when he's in his village, he is helping all of the elder villages around. He is uh, villagers around. He is um, you know, highly engaged in his community. Um, but, you know, it's it's interesting with the newspaper. I've been a bit revol revolutionized, not by the people in this book <laughs> on this. I, I met a woman at a poetry reading here in Santa Cruz and she was Scottish and, you know, Brexit had just happened. And I said, oh, you know, what's your opinion? You know, she's a very leftist woman. I could tell from re listening to her poems on Brexit. And she's like, I pay no attention to that. There is enough problems right here in Santa Cruz to use up an entire lifetime. Why are we thinking that there's so many things that we could address right now and right here? It doesn't mean that we won't participate in international movements or, you know, try to make uh, political change. I mean, also the, the capacity to make political change in Japan. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not as bad as China, but it's, it's pretty damn limited. So, so tell me about that. Because I, I don't know anything about it, really. Well, it's not really the focus of the book, but I just think that being with a bunch of leftist activists and see, you know, I mean, the Sierra Club or something here in the United States will have a, a lawsuit or they'll try to shut down a, a coal power plant and sometimes they'll succeed, right? It's incredibly rare for citizens' movements to make any headway. From what I've seen, I'm not a sociologist of Japan. I'm not reading the Japanese politics every day, but from what I saw of social movements, like even after Fukushima, a mm, lot of, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, one of the worst nuclear disasters in the world, people in Japan voted in the pro-nuclear party again. And a lot of those plants are starting up and there's vigorous movements to keep those plants shut and they get opened up anyway. So you could say, not that Murata says this, but okay, I could read newspapers until I'm blue in the face and get apoplectic about how incredibly frustrating it is, you know? But how much does that actually change what's what's going on? Uh, and so as he says, it's better to get to the rice paddy and grow rice. And I Focus think Focus on what you can control? Yeah, you know, I think that's 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 part of... I, I, I think it might be a little, little bit of a simpler way to say it mm, than... Okay. than I think you just keep it, keep it as a metaphor, you know, <laughs> okay. better to get to the rice paddy <laughs> than to kind of get angry about the, you know, liberal democratic party has passed a new resolution to change article nine in the constitution such that arms sales can be made to you know, more countries or something like that, which is in many ways, they don't have any, any capacity to change. 
Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Tune in to our award-winning morning news program right here during primetime, 8 o'clock weekday mornings, right here on K-Squid, on KSQD. Our independent news program offers diverse perspectives, unique opinions unheard in the mainstream media, live as the news unfolds. Tune in for Democracy Now!, The War and Peace Report, weekday mornings at 8, right here on KSQD Community Radio, 90.7 FM. Welcome back to Story Behind the Story on KSQD 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel. For those of you just tuning in, my guest today is local author Andy Couturier, and we're talking about his book, The Abundance of Less, Lessons in Simple Living from Rural Japan. Well, this seems like a good time to have you do a reading of okay. the book. San Oizumi, just to give you a little context on it, he is a potter. He is an anarchist. He rides around on a motorbike. He's... Uh, grew up in a slum. Um, he is incredibly brilliant with his anti-nuclear strategies and a lot of really interesting activist ideas, only a small percentage of which I put into the book. And he invited me to do tea ceremony. And I was like, oh God, another Japanese tea ceremony, which I had experienced up until that point as you know, highly formalized mm -hmm. and highly uptight and and not really meditative in any way. It's just like, oh, I'm sitting with my legs the wrong position, or I'm, you know, not turning the teacup the mm. right direction. And it, um, and it was totally different than that. And he said before we went in there that the tea house functions also as a nuclear fallout shelter, right. which was like what? And indeed, he had dug into the side of the hill with him and his son with shovels and pickaxes. Uh, 10 or 15 feet back into the hill and then created this uh, dome-shaped um, underground tea house like under the earth. So that's the context. <laughs> um, all right. So after we have finished the tea, we lean back against the smooth earthen wall. And in this timeless world, I fall into a true peacefulness. Yet Oizumi's purpose in digging out this fallout shelter by hand is not to encourage any kind of complacency. He reminds me, as I said before, I don't expect to live a long life. The world is too dangerous. It seems to me an odd statement to make here in this quiet grotto deep in the earth. I ask him what he means. Well, he asks me half quizzical, half testing tone, can you tell the pattern in the wood here? He points to the floorboards and then to the door, raising his eyebrows, tilting his head. Can you see the connection to Chernobyl? I admit to him that I can't. Look at the pegs here. As he points out the wooden nails that he has used to fasten the boards together, I notice they are an irregular but somehow not random grouping. Four, two, six. April 26th was the day of the meltdown of the reactor core. Then he points out the same four, two, six theme in the punched holes of the large bell-shaped clay lanterns that illuminate the room. You see, it seems beautiful, he continues, but it's also a warning to all of us not to forget all of this beauty is sitting right on top of a tremendous amount of danger. He looks at me. At any time, another Chernobyl could happen. He's right, of course, and I, like most people, prefer not to think about it. Oizumi, however, doesn't let this forgetting happen to him. Maybe the tea room is a way for him to remember, or maybe it is evidence of his refusal to forget. He says, a national TV network came to my house once to do a segment on this unusual tea room, but 
he says with a smile, half cynical, half knowing, they left out any reference to it being a fallout shelter or of nuclear power. While I suspect I know why the network would have edited that detail out, I can also see how easy it would be for anyone to forget. I too allowed myself to become enraptured with the spirit of the ceremony and the protected feeling in here. Nuclear power, Oizumi continues, is inconsistent with the way of tea. He lets this statement sit there for some time until I ask him what he means. The way of tea is one of humility and poetic sentiments, not of grandiosity and gorgeousness. The ideal behind nuclear energy is a limitless amount of free electricity lighting up every part of the planet. Also, the way of tea requires that one must never bring weapons into the tea room or anything that might be used as a weapon. Not only nuclear fuel, but even nuclear waste, as you know, can be used to make weapons. Although, he says with an absolutely deadpan look on his face, I've often thought that the cockpit of a tank would probably be just perfect size for a tea ceremony room. And after all, we shouldn't be using them for war. We ought to put these items to good use, and they're even mobile. <laughs> I laugh out loud. He continues, just think of all the money that is spent on the so-called Japan Self-Defense Forces. With that much dough, we could build a glass tube all the way across the Pacific Ocean. And then next weekend, you and I could jump on our motorcycles and ride across to America. <laughs> I catch the tiniest glint of mischief in his eye before he turns his head away. Oizumi's wife, Yuriko, smiles at his joke and then stands up to take her leave. I thank her, stumblingly trying to indicate how different this experience has been from my previous encounters with the tea ceremony. She bows politely to me and leads us to our discussion. I look back to Oizumi, and I remember something I heard him say. Your friend Atsuko told me you're an anarchist. Yeah, I am, he replies, looking at me and tilting his head as if to say, what of it? Well, there, there's so many definitions of that word. What does it mean to be an anarchist in Japan? Of course you don't understand Japanese anarchism. <laughs> That's because each anarchist, not just in Japan, each one anywhere is different. And then he takes the conversation without warning to France. A few years ago, I was invited to Europe to speak at a rally. I talked about the nuclear issue here in Japan. And when I finished, there were 5,000 people there. Everyone started cheering wildly and making noise. It was disturbing. You have to be careful with that kind of thing. It felt like some kind of demagogue with all those people cheering for me. Like a lot of what Oizumi says, this statement holds the curious power to get one to think about one's own behavior. How would I act in a similar situation? Would I bask in the cheering? Would I feel smug that others thought I was right? He continues back to Japan. In this village, during the elections, all kinds of people in the leftist groups came to see me to get my support. There's always discord in those radical groups, people who are in the Marxist party and those who are not. My father was an anarchist too. And during the war, he supported neither side. When the Japanese militarists came to him, he said, I don't know you. When the Americans came, he said, I don't know you. So if the Marxist Party people come to talk to me, that's okay. And they have the right to exist. But I cannot support them 100%. Likewise, if the ruling conservative party says something good, then I say, that's good, isn't it? Though, of course, most of what they say is bad. And if it is bad, I say, there's something wrong. I don't read books about anarchism or any such thing. What I do is simple. I read and write about the current problem, the nuclear waste dump. For Oizumi, any kind of group has the same problems. Any kind of group. 
You know, potters often form associations. I don't join those. People in groups get together and do things the same way as everyone else in order to avoid anxiety, even if those things have no meaning at all. For example, wearing a necktie has no meaning. If wearing a necktie would prevent you from getting a cold, I'd wear one. If you join some kind of association, your own true way of thinking gets shackled. You do things just to give yourself that feeling of ease. The word in Japanese that Oizumi uses here, anshin, literally translated means peace heart anshin, but is used every day in Japan to mean the absence of worry, of relief from fear. As Oizumi uses the term, however, it's almost as if anshin is a cowardly place people retreat to, and it's definitely something he doesn't want to control his life. He continues, In a group, just saying hello and greeting people can become unnatural, especially if someone in the group has some high rank. You start to speak to them in a way that's completely fake. It's not like he's actually that amazing. It's just his position in the company or group. The reason people give high-ranking people respect is because they have a problem with their own self-valuation. It's probably why they joined a group in the first place. That and their own pride. They want to look good as a member of an important group. A group with such important members. This pressure is incredibly strong in Japanese society. Listening to him, I think to myself, that's sure true here in Japan, this group-oriented society. But as if he has read my mind, Uizumi says, if you state it extremely, it's like the way people are about the Japanese emperor. They think he's a great person. America has the same tendency as well. They don't have an emperor, but a lot of people want one. I have to laugh, he continues. The problems get worse the bigger the group is. In a small group, if some mistake is happening, it's quickly recognized. But if it's a big group, people just say, well, that person is a great person, and he's said to do it. And even if it's a mistake, even if it starts to taste bad, they do it. It is characteristic of Oizumi's storytelling that he uses different voices for each of the characters, rendering in hilarious ballooning inflections. That person is such a great person. <laughs> Simply by using the tone of his voice, he can recreate how certain they are in their error and how they mock those who disagree with them as idiots. Political parties are like this too, even the left-wing parties. That's why I'm an anarchist. So you said earlier that you also see yourself as an anarchist. Yeah. Is your I'm anar- also a Marxist too, so <laughs> uh, many it- anarchists and many Marxists say you can't be both, but I think you can. Oh, so, yeah, I was going to ask you the same question you asked Oizumi-san. What does that mean to you? What does it mean to be an anarchist? Well, um, let's be like direct. Okay, I'm being interviewed on the radio right now <laughs> by you. So maybe uh, certain ways of thinking would be like, oh, so great to meet you, great Clara. Can you please help me sell my book? And I could, you know... Uh, you know, and if, if it was Terry Gross, I'd really kiss up to that thing. And I, 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 I don't think that's a natural way for people to be with each other. Um, as I said in my writing classes, I think, I mean, this is such a deep, deep thing in writing classes. Oh, this person's a published writer, or that person's really famous, or this person's the real expert, or I don't write well. And all of this hierarchy forces people into real suffering, I think. Um, and it, in the course of writing, in the case of writing class, it tends to make people write poorly, you know, because they're they're twisting themselves over to, like, mm-hmm. sound important or use huge vocabulary or try to impress people. Um, I also just think that, uh, you know, this whole 
relationship of like the president of the United States of America, Barack Obama. You know, we got snookered by that whole thing and we swelled with pride, you know, and I just think it led to a lot of problems um, then and now. And I think, you know, from all these levels in which we take one person and elevate them above others and whether that's a child being, um, you know, hurt by a parent because the parent just has more power, physical power, economic power, um, to, you know, friends who like one person gets famous and all of a sudden everyone's either kissing their boots or they're like too famous to talk to each other and just all these distinctions with people. But anarchism is something that's, I think, quite worthy to read about and to think about. Like, you know, we, you know, that word has been taken over. They're like, okay, it's this, this violent thing where everyone like, you know, wears black and, and tears each other down. But almost all the anarchists I know are incredibly playful and community oriented and friendly. They just don't see the need for human beings to arrange themselves in hierarchical ways. Um, you know, and whether it's bootlicking or ass kicking, kissing or whatever it is, you know, it's, it's, it's just an, an unnatural way to be. And I think it leads to a lot of, a lot of real suffering where we start to, you know, whether it's, uh, any of the isms, you know, homophobia or mm -hmm. racism or sexism, it's all about hierarchies. It's one person right. being better or worse than the other. And I'm totally opposed to it. I liked a, a word you used earlier, playful. Um, yeah. cause I think that describes Oizumi-san very well, at least as he comes across in the book. There is this sort of playful challenge. We talked about it earlier, right? He is correcting almost every sentence you, you say, and it mm -hmm. is this kind of, it feels like this kind of play for him. Mm -hmm. Is that, would you say that that is right? How would you correct me? Nobody is one personality all the time. Mm -hmm. Certainly not you or me, I don't think. Uh, so Oizumi can be quite serious, you know, and, and quite heavy. Uh, this is something that's not in the book and I just heard it. So I'll, I'll share it. I was just with him. It's not a playful story at all. He said, yeah, Notre Dame cathedral just burned. You know, when they built that, I mean, how many hundreds of years ago was that 800 years ago? This is, I'm quoting him. So he's like, I'm not sure what it is, but that was before maybe they even had guns, you know? And, mm -hmm. and now we have a weapon system where with the touch of a button, we could kill Two million people. That's the advance that's happened in weaponry. But they weren't able to put the fire out, even though the river, the hundreds of millions of gallons of water was all around it. That being able to, human beings being able to put a fire out, that's a very basic yeah. thing about protecting ourselves. And we weren't able to put a fire out. That's the that's the way our world has become. So that's not at all playful. It's kind of a very heavy metaphor but it's the way he can sort of see through things which mm. is another big benefit of not being too busy all the time is you can really sort of sit and think about things and not just be flooded with facts data ideas uh, things to do and tasks you can really think through things and i think that's a great metaphor and he just repeated mm. it at the end he's like 800 years ago not even guns now we can kill two million people with a button and we are not able to put out a fire with water all around. That's the kind of, I think he says that's the kind of idiots human beings are. <laughs> and I don't think he meant it in a laughing way. So yeah, he's got all yeah. kinds of sides to him. Going back to, to the passage and to that, that 
room that tea house yes that is a fallout shelter mm-hmm. reading about it reading about the relationship to chernobyl maybe in part because i just watched the hbo miniseries and have been reading midnight in chernobyl um about that i imagine sitting there had a kind of emotional resonance that that maybe since it's not the focus of the book as much doesn't come through can you tell me a little bit about that emotional experience oh that i had being yeah, in yeah. the what does it feel like to sit in that room and well, learn that it's about well uh i think the best thing to do is to go to uh the painting so each tea room traditionally we'll have a scroll painting it might be birds or flowers in a normal tea house well he had a black and white you know ink painting of a child's face and the child had a tear coming out of its eyes a very realistic and the thing about the painting is it's part of a conversation so a tea house is actually a place for uh framing a conversation or framing a way to discuss things and so the the host of who's serving the tea is not just giving you tea but creating the situation where a good conversation can happen which is quite valuable and so this child he pointed out was actually a child um from belarus uh who um thyroid cancer and uh soon after the painting was made this child um died Mm. And so, you know, there's something about sadness which is silent. There's uh, something where there's sort of nothing to say. You're just sitting there with the grief or with the loss of a loved one where both people are in the presence of that death, of the ridiculousness of producing that much electricity, you know, and in the case of Japan for, you know, hundreds of thousands of vending machines, and they're literally everywhere that use up two nuclear power stations worth of energy, just the vending machines in Japan or the pachinko parlors or the, you know, shopping districts lit up all around the clock, 24 hours a day. And that we're willing to risk the life, not only of our own generations, uh, but generations in the future for that ridiculous thing to to be there and to be in the presence of that and to have the quietness and to not be interrupted by 20 other things that's mm. going to bring us away from that reality and to truly feel it. I think that's part of being fully human is to be in the presence of that uh, grief. Um, so that's one of the things that I felt. But it is, again, at the same time, that contradiction of it. Like, it was an incredibly beautiful cup of tea and it was an incredibly gorgeous teacup and the flower arrangement and the exquisiteness of Yuriko, his wife's uh, presentation of the tea ceremony and the, and the, and the incredible gratitude I have to be able to be with a dear friend and someone who's so wise and to give me that time. So all of those feelings were happening at the same time. What do you want people to take away from this book? Hmm. Well, there's a lot of ways to live a really good life and you can figure that out yourself. And, uh, you know, we are in a uh, society of like, what's the takeaway? Um, so I'm going to just really say, get a chance to read the book, The Abundance of Less. It's, um, and to just 
spend some time in it and open up to these people's wisdom and you can't actually create a good life. That's the very first line in mm. the whole book, I think. I've always believed it's possible to live a really great life. And um, of course, society and economics and ecological disaster and war and everything else is going to push back. But it's a conundrum. Each of us can work out imperfectly and continually and to stay with it. Don't give up and to keep trying to find your own way. And I think there's a lot of many, many different channels of wisdom that these people brought. And that's why I devoted 20 years of my life to writing this book is that I think these are, are truly valuable lessons, not by Native American elders who've maybe never left the reservation or Tibetan Rinpoches who live, you know, in, uh, in seclusion, but people who are living very much in society and grew up maybe in the suburbs, maybe in a working class district, mm. uh, maybe in a fishing village, but that, society not that different than ours that there really is uh, a lot of different ways to live better and that when you do that you're actually bringing a lot of benefit to other people because you have the time for friendships you have the time for caring for each other you have time to, for contemplation which is i think one of the reasons we should be here and time to uh go to a protest against mm. a horrible policy of, of family separation if you're too busy, you don't have time for that. So make the time. Andy Couturier, thank you so much for joining me today. That's great. You can find Andy's book, The Abundance of Less, at your local library or anywhere books are sold. And you can learn more about Andy's writing classes at his website, theopening.org. Next time, I'll talk to poet and former Santa Cruz resident Lauren Eggert-Crow about her work. The Story Behind the Story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Lanier Sammons. He also wrote our theme.